All right. So when did this song get released? Oh, I was wrong. I was close. 1990. 1990. And which, when did you think it was? You said 89? I said 88, 89, but I was leaning more towards 89. It Never Rains in Southern California by Tony, Tony, Tony. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the IC109 podcast. I am your host, Larry Wiggs, in studio with my guest host, Randy Marie Wiggs. Yep. So, um, we just got back from the Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Plaza. <laughs> and we want to tell you about it. Ladies and gentlemen, let's see. I haven't been back there in quite a long time, especially during COVID, the pandemic and all. I didn't... We went one time. Right. Um, the... Was that before the um the Pan African? It was around that time because because I remember picking up um some African, uh, artifacts or trinkets. I think that's that's why we were there, maybe. Right, but you were you're also there to watch a series of movies, and then. And that's we met up there. Right. Okay. Okay. Yep. So that's, and that was probably twenty nineteen or twenty twenty, early twenty twenty before the pandemic. Anyhow, we hadn't been there in a long time. And even before then, I hadn't been there in many years, um, especially not to shop. So this was an experience going today. And um, let's see what happened. So, oh, okay. The the subject of today's um, podcast is Reginald Lewis. And so we went to the Malik Books at the Crenshaw Plaza in order to purchase two copies of Reginald Lewis's book. And that's because Randy and I are going to read this book together. Right? Yes. So that's our that's our new um, hobby, our new activity. Following up in Nipsey's footsteps. You know, Nipsey was a reader. And, um, you know, we want to improve our lives and improve our, our base of knowledge. And this is a great book to uh, start with. Yes. Did you say the title already? I did not. Can I say it? Yeah. Why should white guys have all the fun? There we go. Why should they? Yep. And that's a... a, Here, let me... I'll tell the story about um, this title. See, the the author, um, Reginald F. Lewis, well, when he was about five years old, he was taking a bath. Um, his grandparents were taking care of him, I believe. It was his grandmother and grandfather who were bathing him. And they were explaining to him how, as a black boy, that some things were not available to him in life. And he, he should learn um, quickly, you know, what uh, he can and cannot do. And they basically explained to him that some things were for white people to do. Wow. And he said... Why should white guys have all the fun? Mm. At a a tender age of five years old, he asked that question. And it's a poignant question for any black man, woman, child, you know. And basically, throughout his life, he was able to overcome all obstacles. And he was able to prove 
uh, to himself, but also to the world, that great success is possible right here in America. And so Reginald Lewis created the a billion-dollar business empire. And he did it all in the 1980s. Oh, wow. Uh, he passed away in nineteen in the nineties in the in nineteen ninety uh, three I believe. Oh, he passed away. Yeah. Oh, how sad. But before he passed away, he was able to rise to the heights of you know uh, unimaginable uh, success or heights you know in America, and it's um it's wonderful that that was possible for him. It's wonderful that we have a record of his life, that we're able to uh, look at it, explore it, uh, analyze it, and learn from it, and uh, perhaps, you know, implement it, follow it. So, Reginald Lewis, the first, the first, you know. I can't wait to read it and, you know, get all the information from him. And I found out about him. I was on YouTube last night. And I came across that title, Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun? And that's certainly a question. Excuse me, I have to cough. Okay. Turn my mic off to do that. Yeah, like, I know when I was a kid, um, I had ambitions of, like, riding uh, dirt bikes, surfing, or at least using or riding boogie boards, you know, skiing, snowboarding, like all that fun, all those fun activities, outdoor activities. I just, I really wanted to do all those things. Skateboarding. Skateboarding is another one of them. And um, the examples that I had to look at at that age were all white. Young white boys, you know. Um, I remember the movie Gleaming the Cube starring Christian Slater. And that was a story about a a young white boy whose uh, adopted brother, I believe, was Vietnamese and somehow is killed. Um, and then Christian Slater, you know, the white savior, the white boy, has to um, avenge his, his adopted brother's uh, murder um, by solving the mystery, who did it and why. And um, skateboarding was a big part of it because Christian Slater's character um, was a skateboarder. And so the, uh, the climax of the movie in includes um, Christian Slater's character and all of his skateboarding buddies getting together, grabbing their skateboards, and like um, having a chase or trying to escape the, um, these, these, these gangsters, these Vietnamese uh, gangsters in America. This was all taking place in America, somewhere in like uh, a highly, a densely uh, populated area. Uh, with Asians, maybe Riverside. Mm. Um, yeah. So, skateboarding was a big part of it, and it was a, it was a huge hit, especially um, with me, because you know it was like, man, this is so cool, so exciting, and skateboarding. Oh, and the characters were all skateboarding in pools. They were doing a whole bunch of illegal stuff that black boys would probably get killed for. Oh, of course. <laughs> you can't you can't um, hop someone's fence. If their pool has been drained, hop their fence and then start skateboarding in that pool. No. If someone discovers, whether it's a neighbor, whether it's the resident, they discover that you're back there, especially some black boys, those cops are coming with their guns drawn, you know. 
but these were white kids. But these were the images that I had as a kid, from Gleaming the Cube to um, another movie called Rad about dirt bikes. Um, then there was another movie called The Dirt Bike Kid. Um, and for me, all the white kids were having fun. And so this title resonates with me deeply. You know, why should white guys have all the fun? Because all of the examples of fun that I see that I've ever been marketed, that's ever been marketed toward me, has always been somebody white. Oh, it's so much fun. It's this, it's that. It's like, wow, wow, wow. So I'm like, ah. Yeah, bro. <laughs> that's what they say, huh? Bro, bro. Bro. Oh, what, why are you so mad, bro? Like, uh, <laughs> code code word for black man or something you know bro um yeah so here we have uh, you know a a black man reginald lewis who had the same question why should white guys have all the fun and he did something about it he said i'm gonna rise to the occasion so part of his story is uh his uh education at harvard university and he started from humble beginnings but he rose to attend Harvard and um, to also, yeah, become a, a billionaire and, um, you know, had a family. So he rose, rose to those heights of success in America and set the example for all blacks, which is amazing. Wow. So is this book going to show us how to become a billionaire ourselves? <laughs> Well, of, thinking. of course, you know, his success, you know, took place in the 80s. Right, different time, different era, of course. Right, and in the 90s, there are some principles I'm sure that we can learn to implement. There are some uh, relevant principles then and now that we can glean from uh, the book. But yeah, we have to take it with, take the story with a grain of salt because right. it's not like just run out and do what Reginald did. Right. But then today... We have examples like Dr. Dre, Kanye West, mm-hmm. Jay Z, and Beyonce. Right. There's more you just can't think off the top of your head right now. I'm thinking yes. in the entertainment industry. Those are what the three billionaire uh, Nas. Yes, I was just about to say Nas. Nas is up there, um, and then outside of the entertainment, we have uh, Bob Johnson. Okay. Oprah Winfrey, um, Michael Jordan, and then I don't I don't recall his um his name, but he's the guy who paid for the Morehouse uh, graduates. Oh right. Uh, tuition paid paid off their debts uh, a few years ago. I think his last name is Smith. Okay. Um, I can do a quick search on Google. Okay. To do that. Now, in addition to him, there's also uh, Dangote. And uh, I, Aliko, I think, Dangote, um, is the one billionaire from Africa. I believe he's Nigerian, made his money in oil. Um, Dangote. So... I thought there were like several. Didn't, didn't we have like this discussion like a few years ago about the top 15 or it was something like that, like top 15 well, black billion or something like that? In 2019, there were only 13 black billionaires, according to Forbes 500 list. Oh, okay. 
and um, yeah. All right, so I'm typing in doing a, doing a Robert Smith. Is that his name? Morehouse billionaire gift. Okay, there it is. Robert F. Smith. Robert F. Smith donated $34 million to pay off um, the debt of the graduates of Morehouse in 2019. So that's who I was referring to. Right. I remember that. Yeah, so including Robert F. Smith, those entertainers I mentioned, um, Dan Gote, Oprah, Jordan, there are only 13. Wow. There were only 13 uh, black billionaires. So, yeah, we have a long ways to go. What about Russell Simmons? He's not a part of that group? Um, no. I didn't see his name up okay. there. Um, I'm not sure. Now, I will say that I did. I just watched a video on another YouTube video. Do you video. want to travel to Ghana? Sarfo? Bafo? That was that was a nice little <laughs> interjection from the YouTube I just clicked on. Do you want to travel to Ghana? Yes, yes, I want to travel to Ghana. Okay. Um <laughs> Do you want to travel to Ghana? <laughs> That's um Sarfo Bafo. That's the YouTube uh uh the YouTuber content creator Sarfo Bafo's voice, okay? I just clicked on his video in hopes of finding the video that I just watched about the the black uh, billionaires or the black uh, elite. So on YouTube, I watched this video and they were showing uh, the elite right here in Los Angeles and um, and they were they were doing pretty well. I think no 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 it wasn't Los Angeles it was Atlanta. Oh okay. Right so they were showing um, the Atlanta elite and they were just talking about how. Um, how great it is to be in Atlanta, how prosperous um, they have been, and yeah, things were looking, um, you know, pretty swell for them. So, let's get into this book, shall we? Oh, yes. All right. Um, the video that I watched about the book included an interview with um, Mr. Lewis's uh, widow and she talked about his life and so she, her words were inspiring to me and um, the gentleman who introduced her said that he read this book and his life was uh, inspired his journey was inspired by um, by Lewis by Reginald F. Lewis and so yeah let's let's take a look Let's take a look here. The foreword and then the introduction. All right. This is not his widow. No, that's his daughter. That's why I thought like, she's pretty young. I mean, you never know these days, you know? <laughs> <laughs> nah, all right. Yeah, there's uh, Bob Johnson. I see a picture of Bob Johnson. Melody Hobson. Yep, Melody Hobson's a financier. Her picture is in the book. Okay. Some people I don't know, faces I don't know. <clears throat> so we're looking through the book right now. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Where should we begin? Publishers' notes, acknowledgments. Well, there's a lot to read. Okay. 
There's a lot to read before you get to the story. Oh, this mm. is in Baltimore, Maryland. Okay. Baltimore, Maryland, right. Just out there last year. Right. Last year? Yeah. All right, so why don't we go ahead. I'll, I'll begin reading the prologue. I have to cough again. Whew. Do you have to too? <laughs> yeah. We have to we have to time ours. Alright, we're, <laughs> we're gonna mute ourselves so we can cough. Go. Okay, we're back. Boy oh boy, man. <laughs> Alright, so we're gonna read the prologue here. On page thirteen, X I I I page. Strolling briskly along one of Manhattan's better-known boulevards, 44-year-old Reginald Francis Lewis reared back and unleashed a quick right uppercut. A crisply executed left jab followed, but both punches struck only air, leaving eddies of August humidity in their wake. Oh, I don't have my glasses. Continuing down the Avenue of the Americas in his $2,000 dark blue Italian-made suit, his ruggedly handsome features tinged orange from the mercury street lights, Lewis threw punch after exuberant punch until he grew arm-weary. All, all the while, he flashed a gap-toothed grin and emitted a booming belly laugh at a phalanx of the well-dressed business partners accompanying him chuckled too or looked on with bemused expressions trailing about 50 feet behind with its parking lights on lewis's black mercedes limousine shadowed the group inside the car where the air conditioner was set at precisely 70 degrees and classical music played on the radio Per Lewis's instructions, the driver watched attentively for a casual wave of the hand, indicating Lewis was tired of walking and ready to ride. But on the night of August 6, 1987, Reginald Lewis was in the throes of such an invigorating adrenaline rush he could have walked all night into the dawn. A successful corporate lawyer who remade himself into a fine is it financier mm -hmm. and buyer of corporations. Lewis had bought the McCall Pattern Company for $22.5 million, guided it to record earnings, and recently sold it for $65 million, fetching a 92 to return on his investment. All right, before we continue, let's, let's recap here, because what they're describing is, all right, they said 40, he was 44 years old, so he's, two years older than Randy and I are right now. He was, when this was, what they're describing took place, he was two years older than us. So he's walking down the street. Some of his white colleagues are um, with him. And I guess he's punching into the air with, you know, excitement. Right. So this is how he expresses his excitement. He's punching. He's like, yeah, man, I did it. Ooh, oh man, I'm the man. Yeah, baby. So he's punching the air and his um his driver is watching him, just waiting for him to um to hop in the car. But um yeah. And so why is he so excited? Because he's 
uh, passed this deal. He's finished this deal. All right. McCall Pattern Company. $22.5 million. Yep. What is it? So he bought it for $22.5 million and sold it for $65 million. Ooh, yeah. So he made roughly a $43 million profit. You can buy a, a whole lot of pairs of uh, Nike Air Jordans with $43 million. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're turning the page here. Is it my turn? It's your turn. Okay. But even that improbable achievement was small potatoes compared with what Lewis had pulled off a few hours earlier. This audacious African-American born to a working-class family in Baltimore had just won the right to buy Beatrice International Foods, a global giant with 64 companies in 31 countries for just under a billion dollars. That's why Lewis was happily jabbing his way down the avenue of the Americas in a most uncharacteristic public display of mirth and light-heartedness he and his colleagues had just left the 50th Street offices of investment banker Morgan Stanley, where Lewis signed the papers associated with the Beatrice International Auction. Now, foregoing his plush limousine, Lewis preferred to walk the six blocks from 50th Street to the Harvard Club located at the 44th Street. A richly appointed bastion of Manhattan's old boy network, the Harvard Club invariably reminded Lewis of just how far he had come from his blue-collar youth in segregated Baltimore and just how far he intended to go. Constructed of red brick in the tradition of the most of the buildings on Harvard's campus, the Harvard Club of the New York City was a favorite Lewis haunt. He and his uh, victorious entourage walked through the front door and into the lobby towards the f double French doors topped by a signed reading, sign reading, members only. Louis half walked, half floated through the double doors, past the overstuffed couches and desks desk with Harvard Club stationery on them, and into the grilled room was a crimson-colored carpet, walls paneled with dark wood and subdued lightning. Lighting. Lewis seldom went into the cavernous main dining room, where row after row of mounted animal heads graced the walls and chandeliers the size of small plants dangle from the ceiling, above endless rows of tables covered with fresh white linen. Passing the grill room's backgammon tables and fireplace where a fire was usually lit in the winter time lewis walked towards his favorite table a uniformed waiter with a litting caribbean accent rushed up to greet lewis with a mixture of formality and familiarity established over the course of a long-running relationship good evening mr lewis the waiter said smiling how goes it, Archie? Lewis replied, ebulliently. 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 All right, I said ebulliently. Yes. Grasping the surprised waiter's hand and patting him heartily, heartily on the back. 
Okay, so we're going to stop here for a second. So just as I said, he was punching in the air because he was so excited. But on this page, we learned that he was excited because he bought Beatrice International Foods. It says he bought it for just under a billion dollars at 44. That's in two years, Randy. We can catch up to him in two years, right? Uh, Make these billion dollar deals. We could do that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. My goodness. All right, so... And... um. Okay, so he's so he, he and his entourage have entered the uh, this Harvard's club, the Harvard club in New York. It's members only, and they're entering. They're going past what animal heads yeah. on the wall, chandeliers. So this is opulence. This is decadence. This is just they got money. Dude had money. Forty forty some years old. He's got money, and um, yeah. And so they're celebrating, ready to celebrate. So let's continue here. Lewis made a move toward his table. Oh, it's his table. Huh? Yeah, his table. Lewis made a move toward his table. Then, with surprising fluidness and grace for a man five foot ten and about twenty pounds overweight. Right on, brother. You were overweight. <laughs> Got a little bit of pudgy pudge on, on the stomach there. Okay. Eating well. Already. Uh, about 20 pounds overweight, and, and 5'10", that's only one inch taller than me. Okay, but I digress. Let me continue. <laughs> Where was I? Uh, about 20 pounds overweight, changed direction, and made a beeline for the snack bar. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting on a cantilevered uh, wooden table, as always, was a bowl of popcorn, one filled with pretzels, and another containing Ritz crackers. The fourth bowl had what looked to be a mountain of cheese whiz with two gleaming silver knives sticking in it. <laughs> Grabbing a small white porcelain dish embossed with Harvard Club insignia, Lewis filled it with cheese and crackers, then headed to his table where he ordered two bottles of Cristal Champagne at $120, $120 a pop. $120 a pop. All right, two bottles. That's $240 right there. Cristal. What did Jay-Z say when you're drinking champagne? No, no, no. This was, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. What did he say? It's not, I'm not going to mess it up. Right, crystal. It's Cristal. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Same thing uh, Quentin Tarantino said in, in uh, the movie Four Rooms. He said, when you're drinking champagne, you're drinking champagne. But when you're drinking Cristal, you're drinking effing Cristal, you know. <laughs> All right. Excuse me. I digress. After several toasts, a third bottle. What was that $360 now? Yeah. A third bottle of Cristal materialized, followed by a fourth and a fifth. Five times, uh, what's that, 600? Wait, five times 12? Is that 60? Let's just take 60 for now. Yeah, it's 60. <laughs> Man, that's six hundred bucks, mm -hmm. easy on on champagne. Okay, sorry. Let me continue. <laughs> uh, let's see, fourth and a fifth. Okay, bringing the total to one bottle for each of the five men at Lewis's table. Lewis cut the celebration short. There was still much more to be done, much well, work to be done. Winning an auction for Beatrice International was easy compared with the incredibly complex, time-consuming, and expensive effort it would take to close the deal. Hmm. Even so, winning the auction was a tremendously satisfying feat. 
made even sweeter by the fact that Lewis outbid several multinational companies, including Citicorp, that <clears throat> excuse me, that were aided by squads of accountants, lawyers, and financial advisors. Lewis had won by relying on Moxie, financial and legal savvy, and the efforts of two-man team consisting of himself and a recently hired business partner. In fact, when Lewis tendered his bid, a representative of one of the investment banking firms handling the auction called Lewis's office and said, we, re we received from your group an offer to buy Beatrice International for $950 million. We have a small problem. Nobody knows who the hell you are. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so look at that. He had a team, so there were there were men he had to trust with all that money to carry out this deal. Right. He didn't do it alone. He was working with folks. Okay, so here we go. Wait, that's a lot of money. I'm just right. That's a lot of money to be <laughs> trusting with some other people. Man. Yeah. Like what Chris Tucker say, man. Same time, man. <laughs> when exchanging money, like <laughs> I don't know you. Same time, man. <laughs> All right. The world knew who Lewis was by the time he succumbed to brain cancer in January 1993 at the relatively young age of 50. Wow. His net worth was estimated by Forbes at $400 million when he died, putting him on the magazine's 400 list of wealthiest Americans. In the last five years of his life, Lewis gave away more money than most people dream of earning in several lifetimes, and he generally did so without fanfare. More than 2,000 people attended Lewis's funeral and memorial service, including author Ash, just before his own death, opera diva Kath Kathleen Battle sang Amazing Grace at the memorial service. And Lewis's family received words of condolence from Bill Clinton, Ronald Reagan, Colin Powell, and Bill Cosby, among others. Cosby was there. Uh. Cosby was there. Cosby just makes a point, makes it a point to always be there, to be seen, doing the right thing. Mm. Meanwhile, Cosby is doing other things. My goodness. Mm -hmm. Regardless of race, color, or creed... We are all dealt a hand to play in this game of life, Cosby wrote. And believe me, Reg Lewis played the hell out of his hand. With his deep-set, piercing eyes, bushy mustache, seemingly perpetual skull, and megawatt... Megawatt. I knew that. <laughs> megawatt intensity, Lewis wasn't the most approachable of individuals either through expertise or influence, he commanded respect. A romantic who once surprised his wife, Loida, by flying her on his private jet from Paris to Vienna just to hear a classical music con concert, Louis was a Francophile who spoke French fluently and maintained a Paris apartment in King Louis XIV's historic Place du Palais Bourbon. Ooh, I'm glad that's your part. <laughs> <laughs> In Manhattan, Luis-esque, 
Louis-esque um, standards of luxury called for a 15-room, 15-room, seven-and-a-half-bath co-op purchased for $11.5 million from John DeLorean. Weekend getaways were enjoyed on Long Island in a $4 million Georgian-style mansion. Wait, wait, wait. Before we continue, let's 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 recap what I just read. Okay. All right. So, bro was a Francophile, which means French stuff he loved. He was all about French stuff. And so, he had a, a Paris apartment. It says the King Louis the Fourteenth historic um, Place du Palais Bourbon. Place du Palais Bourbon. Okay, I don't know anything about that, but. Okay, so the bro loved um, French stuff, okay? And then in Manhattan, he had a luxury 15-room co-op. 15-room? Okay, wait. What is a co-op? Oh. Because, okay, by 15 rooms, does that mean that there are 15 people living in each room? No. I can explain the co-op. Okay, well, this is my guess. A 15-room just means, like, it's a, ma- it's a huge apartment with 15 rooms in it. Okay. Is that correct? Well, from what I know, like co-ops from back east, like co-ops are like just different. Like they're most like condos. Like so, I don't know if it if it's the room is considered the condo or it was just like the one condo had like like well, I guess it wouldn't be a condo, but like had was it fourteen, fifteen rooms? That's what I just said. No, but I'm I'm explaining to you like you own them, and so like if say if you had like you own like you own a piece of the co-op, like you own one of the rooms. So if if you had to like move to another room. It was still you still own it like you can they can move around but you still own a piece of the co-op if that makes sense I don't think I explained it well but no 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 I got you okay but still it says it's a fifteen room seven and a half it's a lot but wait if there's fifteen rooms in one co-op with seven and a half ba- bathrooms then that means it's one right. house right so that's probably one resident whether it's a family or what but a fifteen room with seven and a half bathrooms wait so it was eleven point five million dollars. And then he bought it from John DeLorean. DeLorean. You know what the DeLorean is? The car? That, the car the, from Back to the Future. What the door said, move upward. Yep. The the Tesla before the Tesla. But there was nothing about it that right. was electric. So it really wasn't a Tesla. But yeah, but John DeLorean got caught up because he was into drugs. At at one point, he, he was a disgraced billionaire and all kind of stuff because he was trying to mess with Maybe the Colombians and drug dealing and stuff. So, just some interesting, interesting uh, details. So, anyhow. Okay, so it's charming. Is it irascible? Irascible. I knew it. Irascible and prone to mood swings. Louis was a quirky and amalgam. Amalgam. Amalgam of pride, ego, and towering ambition as ever sauntered into a boardroom, quick to unsheath his razor-sharp tongue and intellect against adversaries. 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 I knew that. <laughs> Quaking employees and even relatives, Lewis achieved one of the most spectacular corporate buyouts in an era of such mega deals. But not before he first overcame daunting obstacles and setbacks with a single-mindedness that should inspire not just entrepreneurs, but 
anyone fighting against prohibitive odds as Lewis did. Prohibitive odds. Prohibitive odds. That means that the odds of a black man or woman succeeding you know, in American society are low. Prohibited, the, the prohibitive odds, the, or rather the odds, the prohibitive odds are high because the prohibition, the, 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 um, the, the desire to stop you from doing what you want is high. The prohibitive odds against prohibit man. So the brother, it's clear that the brother was fighting against racism. It's clear. This is what this book is about. You know, and we have to fight against it, you know, even to this day. And luckily we have a hero, you know, to, to follow in whose footsteps and aspire to because he overcame that, that BS. Right, definitely during that time and making that much money being a black man. Wow. Well, we have plenty of examples throughout history of black men who have overcome from Frederick Douglass to Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King. Um, Biddy Mason, um, all of us, Lena Horne, uh, Sidney Poitier, the list goes on, on and on. Yes. But, but, the, but the, our challenge, the, those prohibitive odds that we are fighting, in, they have always existed. So the struggle must continue. Right. Lewis was proud to note that he was the only person ever admitted to Harvard Law School without having so much as submitted an application, but it wasn't a primrose path that Lewis walked. His acceptance into Harvard Law School came only after he had doggedly uh, Why is maneuvered. this alarm going off in the <laughs> middle of the reading? Appointments, appointments. <laughs> yeah, doggedly maneuvered himself into a position where charm had hard work enabled him to crash the gates. So it was with mo it was with most of the noteworthy accomplishments of Lewis's life. Excuse me, excuse me. Let me read that again. So it was with most of the noteworthy accomplishments of Lewis's life. Nothing came easily or without enormous preparation and dedication on his part. A harbinger that Lewis was not one to be cowed or intimidated by barriers of any kind appeared when he was still a small boy. All right, Randy, so this is the story about the title that I was uh, referencing when we began. This is a nice way to bring it right back right. to review. So here it goes. I remember being in the bathtub and my grandmother and grandfather. Yeah, we're not we're not recording a podcast. You know, that's not we're, that's not what we're doing here. I'll, I'll try to do this one again. In case you're wondering, that's background noise. You dig? We are not in a studio. You dig? All right, let's try it again. I stop laughing, Randy. That's that's cold. <laughs> We're human. Mm -hmm. This is the raw dude. Here we go. And one more time. One more pass. Mm. Yep. When they come through the phone. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's loud enough. Okay. 
So now you know all the business going on in the family right now. Yeah. All right, so, okay, I'm trying to, here we go, here we go, here we go. I remember being in the bathtub and my grandmother and grandfather were talking about some incident that had been unfair and was racial in nature. They were talking about work and accomplishing things and how racism was getting in the way of that. And they looked at me and said, well, maybe it will be different for him. I couldn't have been more than about six years old. One of them, I can't remember whether it was my grandfather or my grandmother, said to me, well, is it going to be any different for you? And I was climbing out of the tub and they were putting a towel around me. I looked up and said, yeah, because why should white guys have all of the fun? Ladies and gentlemen, we are reading Reginald Lewis's story, and we just completed the prologue. And if I may, I will play an excerpt from the recording from the YouTube video. You should hear the voice of Reginald Lewis's uh, wife. Um, speaking. This is Reginald F. Lewis, America's first black billionaire businessman. Um, and she, Loida Lewis, um, Reginald's uh, widow, is speaking at Mercy College. So you should hear that if all goes well. And I'm just going to play it from whatever point at which I left off and we'll get a little, little piece of it. I'm not going to record all of it because I don't own the rights to all of this, you know, in this legal mumbo jumbo, I don't want to get caught up. So let's just listen, see what, see what we have. He also was the first to think about his next step, which was to purchase Paramount Pictures. He All right, I'm going to pause it for a second because we're still in, I left off um, still during the introductory um, part of, uh, of the presentation. So I'm gonna skip forward so that we can hear Lloyda uh, speaking, Lloyda Lewis uh, speaking of her husband. Lesson. Second, as you saw on parts of the television, he, during his, okay, five, okay, those five years were under his grandmother and grandfather's household. His grandfather was a head waiter in a private club, a private Jewish club. His grandmother would clean white people's homes. And because no babies, you know, she is the babysitter, she would bring him to, while he, she was going to clean. And at one time, maybe he was, you know, six, six years old, not yet going to school, he heard his, the white woman who was, whose house was being cleaned, why don't you ask your grandson to help you? And she, he heard his grandmother say, no, he's special. And so from the very start, he was given a sense of identity, that he's special, he's going to do something good. Okay, that's, I think that's, that formed him. All right, so we're going to stop there. I'm not going to go any further, but you just heard the voice of uh, Mrs. Ms. Lloyda Lewis. And so from very early on, they treated Lewis, uh, Reginald Lewis, as he was special. He wasn't going to, they had high hopes for him. They had high expectations for him so that he, in his life, he would not be relegated to the station 
that they were relegated to during their life. So they they said, "Boy, you going you going to be you going to do something." You know. All right, guys. So thank you for listening. We're going to cut this short because we're getting a lot of uh activity here at the uh at the Wiggs family residence and um we we wanted to focus on this book, which we did. And we hope I hope that you learned something, Randy. Yeah, I learned a lot. And I yeah. Dope. You know, because this podcast really isn't for you all out there. It's for us. Because, I mean, actually, who is actually listening to us? <laughs> Many people. That's the hope and that's the expectation. So, good people, if you're out there, um, stay tuned. Uh, we may continue with another episode uh, referring to Reginald um, Lewis, um, or we may not. We will. Hey, that's cool. Um, but, yeah, Reginald Lewis, y'all, um, a black excellence an example of black excellence worth worth learning about peace peace